So we are picking up the story in Genesis 3 uh, in the Garden of Eden just after the man and the woman have eaten from the one tree they were commanded not to eat of. So I'm going to start at verse 8 of Genesis 3. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The snake deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the snake, Because you have done this, curse to you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labour you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to touch his, to, to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and to eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Uh, thanks, Julie. Uh, hello again. Let me just start this. Uh, I don't mind admitting I've lost most of my children many times. Uh, there was one occasion um, we lost Zeph. He's my third ch- 
child, first son, uh, and he was probably about four, and we were living in uh, South Africa. We'd just arrived, actually, in the country, so we were staying in this house we didn't really know. Uh, and he was... We weren't really playing hide-and-seek, but he disappeared, as he does. Now, he's a very content child, as if you met him. Quite annoying, but content. Uh, and uh, we couldn't find him. And we started calling out, where are you? Uh, just like the Lord does today for Adam. Where are you? And we couldn't find him. We looked everywhere. We started wandering down these dirt roads, looking for him all over the place. Uh, and then eventually, uh, we found him. Uh, and he'd managed to go around the back of this house and found a little corner. He'd pushed his buggy in, and then he'd strapped himself in, and he couldn't undo the button. So, so rather than shout for help, he just thought this was amusing, and he was just sat there just for about half an hour. Uh, but the words, where are you, uh, we often say, and they, they're always carrying a sense of sadness. Now, when a parent says it, it's normally one of fear and dread, and I've lost something. Uh, but when God says it today, uh, he knows that his child is not uh, lost because he's done something that's caused it. Uh, he knows they're lost because they've deliberately rejected him. Uh, so that's what we're thinking about today, and we're thinking about God's response to that. Let's pray uh, before we look through this passage. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that you are a God of justice. It doesn't turn a blind eye to the evil and sin in this world, but we also know that means there are consequences for us before you, our holy God. But we pray today we would see both your wrath and your mercy today in this passage. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, well, we saw last week from the beginning of chapter 3, if you were here or if you've caught up online, uh, that Adam and Eve, the figureheads for all of humanity, have failed to trust in the goodness of God. They've failed to obey his one command, which was don't eat from the, the tree. Uh, they ate the fruit Uh, that was forbidden. Uh, This week's passage then looks at the justice that has to be given out by God as a result of that action. And so we begin with a trial. Uh, We're going to go through most of the verses in this passage uh, pretty much in order, but there's some points to sort of uh, explain what's going on. So number one, called to give an account. Have a look at verse 8 of chapter 3. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? They're sad words, aren't they? Where are you? Uh, We're kind of to envisage, as we read this, that after a day of satisfying labor and work for Adam and Eve, God, the gracious and good provider, would walk with them in the cool of the day, somewhere in the Middle East, to talk and to share and to love. But today, they're hiding. Now, of course, the the irony is deliberately obvious. You can't hide from the creator behind a created thing. Uh, A bit like a hamster who runs and hides in its house when you open the cage. You know where it is. So often we uh, live out the words of Psalm 139, verse 11. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you, to God. The night will shine like the day to God, for darkness is as light to you. Uh, Sin must be brought into the light. You, You can't hide it from God. You cannot disobey the creator God of all and expect him to turn a blind eye. 
as if it just doesn't matter. Uh, That would make God out to be a liar who's promised judgment if we do not deny his command. Where are you, he says. Uh, It cuts to the heart of the matter, doesn't it? Verse 10, Adam answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Uh, Now before they had nothing to hide, did they? Now they have everything to hide. Uh, Their physical nakedness, illustrative of their moral nakedness before God. Uh, They've tried to be like him. They've tried to decide for themselves what's best for them in their lives. They've ignored his one command. And now they're afraid and they must hide. Our naked bodies show the, the new nakedness of our hearts before God. And we're ashamed and afraid before him. And we should be, shouldn't we? Before a holy and a good and a just God. If we have sinned, then it's right to be afraid. Uh, God presses deeper into this, his calling to account for their actions, verse 11. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? Yes, is the truest, most honourable, simplest answer to this question. But humanity sadly learns fast to keep burying their sin as fast and as quickly as they can and blaming other people before we acknowledge our own wretchedness before God. So verse 12, the man said, Well, the woman you put, you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Now the depth of human depravity that even when faced with the all-knowing creator God of all, we try passing the buck. Uh, such is Adam's arrogance. Uh, now that he's started on this path of rebellion against God, he even tries to imply that some of the blame is God's. The woman you put here with me. And if you're not taking the blame, God, well, that woman, whew, she's the one that gave it to me. And I ate it. Uh, God doesn't rise to Adam's sorry excuses. He's asked him for his account and he's received it. And try as Adam might, he cannot deny the sin itself. I ate it, he says. And so God now turns to Eve for her account, verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The snake deceived me, and I ate it. It wasn't me either, really, she says. The snake deceived me. A little has changed, has it? As we excuse our way, uh, away our sin to other people or to other factors. But again, there's no hiding from God. I ate it, she says. So he's called to account, and now the sentencing begins. Uh, so our second point, sentencing. Firstly, on the snake, verse 14. So, the Lord God said to the snake, who he doesn't bring to account, he just lays out his sentence, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Uh, The language of judgment is, I think, clearly uh, illustrative. Sorry. Uh, Snakes no more eat the dust for sustenance than we necessarily have to think that they had legs before this moment and now they uh, crawl in the the dirt without them. 
the idea is a picture of one's, uh, one being lowered. Uh, their status becomes low. They're now under the power and the ultimate authority of another. They're crawling around in the dirt, we might say. Uh, the image is repeated in the New Testament. Uh, it's most clearly seen, I think, in Micah 7, verse uh, 17, where God's speaking about Israel's enemies. So Micah seven seventeen, it's on the screen. They will lick dust like a snake, like the creatures that crawl on the ground. They will come trembling out of their dens. They will turn in fear to the Lord our God and will be afraid of you. We begin to see Satan's choice of a snake to reveal himself as actually a wise choice. As a snake crawls around in the dust, he's at the mercy of those above. And so Satan will crawl around at the feet of the Lord God Almighty. Uh, Satan is not only sentenced to crawling in subservience to the Lord uh, in shame, but he's also sentenced to an ongoing... uh, uh, Enmity between humanity and the snake. So have a look at verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. And now there's a lot of debate about this verse, but what is clear is that the snake and humans are not going to get along. Uh, enmity exists. And of course, that's a picture for us and Satan. Us and evil, us and sin. And the word offspring here, or or a seed of Eve, and then the seed or offspring of the snake is written as a singular, it's not plural. Uh, And and then the word translated strike and crush are actually the same word in the original. So I think that it carries more of a sense of meaning, but it doesn't sound quite so right. A seed of Eve will strike at the head of a seed of the, uh, the snake, And he will strike at his heel. Uh, There's a sense of ongoing enmity between mankind and Satan, represented here by the snake and Eve. But we're also expecting some kind of ultimate battle, where one seed and one seed will strike each other. Uh, The sentence is severe and long-lasting, but it will culminate in this, this significant event. So amongst this judgment on God's people that we're about to see, maybe there's a promise of hope or mercy. See, a a saviour must come at some point and have this final battle and finally defeat evil, the snake. But this saviour will be fatally harmed as well. Both will be struck. Uh, Part of Satan's sentencing is that one day he will fully lose his battle with mankind. Uh, Hebrews 2 uh, shows us that this fulfillment is in Jesus for the children of God. I think it's on the screen. Since the children, that's of God, so Christians, have flesh and blood, he, that's Jesus, too, shared in their humanity. In other words, he is a seed of Eve. So that by his death... He might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. That's humanity. Death 
which as we're about to see is the ultimate judgment of God uh, as a result of sin, holds us in fear of the one who controls and holds power over uh, death in that sense. Uh, That's the devil. Enmity between humanity and Satan exists in this life. We're, We're afraid of death and following him. But in a great battle, the one man Jesus is struck and dies, but so too he strikes the head of the devil to defeat him eternally in power. And of course we know the Lord Jesus rises again, but ultimately Satan will not. Uh, This really is extraordinary, that even in the sentencing of the devil himself for leading humanity astray into sin and eternal judgment from God, God is showing he is still merciful. Something is coming that shows mercy despite our failure. So we see God's mercy and God's wrath. So what about the sentencing on the woman? Have a look at verse 16. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labour you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. We see his mercy and his wrath again here. Giving birth will now be painful, but give birth you will. You might expect barrenness to be the judgment on sin, mightn't you? You'll surely die. There's no hope for humanity. Well, Eve will still die, but humanity lives on. There's wrath and mercy again. But as you give birth and have children and you experience that pain, you'll be reminded that humanity fell before a good and gracious God. I mean, the sheer joy of childbirth is proof enough, isn't it, of God's mercy, that in, frankly, what is a horrendous physical and painful act, and historically often a a fatal act, new life still brings blessing. God's sentencing of sin is both merciful and rightly just. I mean, imagine a God who placed no sentence on us for our sin. Well, then no one would ever see their need for God, would they? Why do we need God if he doesn't judge our sin? We just ignore him entirely. Or imagine a God who brought instant and full death, just obliterated Adam and Eve, that's the end. Well, then there'd be no chance for God to be glorified, for us to know him, for mercy to come out. So he graciously gives us both. Sentencing for sin that calls us back in pain to remember our need for him and blessing of life so that we can know him. Wrath and mercy. It's interesting also that the mandate for humanity, as we saw in chapter 2, Uh, was to fill and subdue the earth. And it's specifically these two things that are targeted in God's sentencing. It's almost as if you'll you'll find it difficult and painful to obey my command now. Each time you think about that, each time you experience difficulty of sin to serve and please the Lord, to have children, to serve him in work, perhaps you'll remember my goodness seems to be the message. Perhaps you'll remember you betrayed me and you'll come back. Uh, That second part of the verse to Eve is not particularly clear to us. There's lots of disagreement on it. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Uh, There's various theories, um, but because no one's sure, I'm not sure we can draw too much out of it. 
they range from being a reminder of Eve, uh, that Adam has a sense of headship over her within the marriage, given that she's led him astray in sin, uh, or that it actually suggests that there's going to be a sense that Eve always wants to control her husband, a desire to control rather than a desire for. Uh, but equally, there's going to be an ongoing desire for the husband to dominate his wife. Uh, it's hard to be clear which meaning is meant, but one thing is certain. Sin harms our horizontal relationships. So finally, the sentencing on man, verse 17. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you, Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. You must not eat from the tree of life is proof that the death sentence is coming. It's coming his way. You will surely die, God said, and it will surely happen. But notice again how the very mandate of mankind to rule over and subdue the earth now becomes a painful toil. What was intended to be good and great for mankind, to work hard, to glorify him, to enjoy our toil, is now painful and difficult. When we try to obey him, to work for him, even our toil of that, we remember that we rejected his goodness. And so, uh, verse 18, the ground, it will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants, of the, and you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your brow. You will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Life will be characterised by difficult, painful, hard work that is not overly rewarding or satisfying. And ultimately, we will end in death. To the dust you will return. Uh, How often do you think about your work and consider leaving for a better job that is less stressful, easier work, less painful? Sadly, you won't find one. Of course, there are some that are easier than others. But just as the soil produces thorns and thistles and makes work in the field difficult, so is the pattern of work for all of humanity. It's a sentencing on our sin to remind us we rejected God's goodness. Yet again... In God's wrath, in the sentencing of sin, we see mercy, don't we? Despite the toil and the pain, you will eat your food. You will have life. In our work, God is still merciful. We can still provide, we can still eat, on the whole, the normal for humanity. But death is still coming. So thirdly, mercy and wrath, the question begins to form, which is greater? Which will show to be the most glorifying characteristic or attribute of God? Is his right wrath or his undeserved mercy going to outweigh the other? Well, the clues begin to stack up. Verse 20, Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living there will still be a human race. And the mother of all sin will also be the mother of all people. Verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Uh, Back in verse 7, Adam and Eve tried to sew their own fig leaves to cover themselves from God. Clearly they didn't do a very good job. 
But again, isn't the mercy of God so generous that he now provides them clothes? In his mercy, God is so generous that even in their sin that brings them cause now to hide their shame from him, he meets their need. How often we should be amazed that even in our sin, we find God is gracious to us. God is merciful. But sin cannot be without wrath and judgment as well, as we've already seen, verse 22. The Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Uh, Death truly is the consequence of sin, isn't it? Humanity cannot live in God's world thinking that they can be God themselves knowing good and evil, deciding for themselves what's right and wrong. They must be cut off from the tree of life and have a limited number of years on this earth. They will not live forever. So they're banished from the tree and from the garden, verse 23. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. God's right wrath at our sin cannot blindly accept a rebellion against him. And so his justice and his wrath at sin causes him to separate mankind from himself, in a sense. Verse 24, he drove the man out. He's sending him away as the message. He placed at the east side of the Garden of Eden a cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Of course, there's no hiding from God. We thought about that. And we cannot go where God is not already. But the imagery is clear this is a permanent definitive act of separation from the goodness and life that god offers god drove out the man the cherubim heavenly creatures flaming swords flashing back and forth guarding there's no way back to life with god by man's own work so which is it wrath or mercy which will ultimately bring god the most glory It's clear you can't have one without the other. You can't have mercy where there is no wrath. Otherwise it's not mercy. It's just an indifferent God who doesn't care. And you can't have wrath without mercy. Otherwise you just have a hard God who we can't know. Uh, The Israelites are soon reminded of this nature of God when they're given the Ten Commandments and reminded not to make idols before God. And Exodus 20, 5 and 6 reads like this, You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of their parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. God's mercy is greater than his wrath. Wrath will rightly be shown to three or four generations, but love to thousands. We see it again in the life of Jesus, the evil crusher himself, where wrath is not spared, it's not ignored. It's also not spared and ignored against evil. But mercy is shown to those who turn to Jesus, Romans sixteen twenty. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. 
the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. What do we make of the fall of mankind, the trial and the sentencing and the judgment of God upon sin? Well, I hope we make a lot of it. We rightly face God's wrath. But what we actually face is hope. We have food on our tables. We have children in our church, thanks to the mercy of God. As humanity, we still live and create new life, thanks to his mercy. In our sin, we struggle to obey God, yet we still live. We see evil has been defeated by the one man, Jesus. And so we're finally left with our own choice, aren't we? Will we choose wrath, glorify ourselves and our sin, and face the wrath of God? Or will we repent and believe in the Lord Jesus, who holds out mercy? to thousands glorifying God and so enjoying his favour and his mercy generation after generation Uh, I was once lost as a child my mother was clearly not a much better parent than I was I hope she's not listening Uh, I'd gone down a steep bank uh, by the by the coast down to the beach through all this thick bracken and and um, shrubs and I got to the bottom and I heard my mum say, where are you? Those famous words. And we could actually see each other. It wasn't that far, but you know when you're little, if it was the end of the world. Running up and down the beach, trying to find the path back through this bracken. Uh, I couldn't, there was literally no way I could get back to my mother. Serves you right, she said, and got in the car and they all went home. <laughs> No, instead she sent her eldest son, much more intelligent than I am, to come down and drag me back up through the bracken. Wrath is deserved. She told me not to go down. But love is what we receive in Christ. Let me close by reading these words from Ephesians. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. So all of us are sinners. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. Let me pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we praise you that even though we are dead in our sin, we have no way back to you, to life, because of our sin. You give us the Lord Jesus, who crushes and defeats Satan and evil for once and for all, rises to new life, and holds out his hand of hope. Change our hearts so that every day we choose mercy that we trust and rely on the full work of Christ and strive to be obedient to you in response, knowing that you are a good and gracious God. And at each time we fall and find ourselves lost, you call to us again. Give us your mercy, we pray. In the name and work of Jesus, we pray. Amen.